so today is a real simple lesson. We'll say at the beginning, say at the end. It's a real easy formula. <laughs> Being at the right place at the right time with the right words is God's plan for reaching people with the gospel. Easy to understand. <laughs> Being at the right place at the right time saying the right thing is God's plan for reaching others with the gospel, which sounds easy, of course. We're pretty good, Christians are, at making it more complicated than it needs to be. So we're going to keep this real simple today. <laughs> Being at the right place, at the right time, with the right words, is God's plan for reaching people with the gospel. Now, it takes shape in the life of this man, Philip, in this passage we just read, in some ways that are real helpful for us. And in this series for these four weeks, we're just taking a real simple look at what it means to reach those who may seem or feel unreachable to us. In that they may not align with Christian values. They may not understand who Jesus is. They may not be in this room. They may be on, on a range from militant atheist who denies God all the way to somebody who may claim Jesus but doesn't have a meaningful and helpful connection to the body of Christ that helps them become who God created them to be. So we're talking about all these sorts of people in our lives, in our spheres of influence, people around us who may not have forever relationship with Jesus or who are not meaningfully connected to the body in a way that helps them become who God made them to be. And the formula for reaching those people is easy, being at the right place at the right time, saying the right things is how God reaches people with the gospel. Now, Luke, who wrote this uh, book of Acts, Luke was an early church missionary, uh, an evangelist. He was a companion of the Apostle Paul. And he wrote the book of Acts here. It's called Acts because he documents in this book the story of the apostles, the first disciples and followers and church leaders, the first followers of Jesus, how they acted when Jesus left. Okay? After Jesus ascended into heaven. This is important because we see this in Acts 1.8. This is the only other verse we're going to turn to today. If you want to turn there with me, we're going to talk about Acts 1.8 for just a second to get into Acts 8. It says this, Luke giving us a brief outline of the whole book here and talking about how Jesus is giving the mission to the disciples. He says this, quoting Jesus, verse 8. But you, Jesus speaking to the disciples, telling them they're going to carry on the mission, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, emphasizing the mission is theirs now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, empowered by God's action, the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And here's the outline part for the whole book of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now in our passage in eight, chapter 8 here, that's part of a larger section in Acts, in, in chapters 8 through 12, where Luke is showing how the gospel progressively moves out from Jerusalem, the city where they were living, into the regions beyond. Just like Acts 1.8 that we just read says. In other words, we're not to the ends of the earth part yet, right? That begins with Paul's mission to the Gentiles in chapter 13. Our passage in Acts 8 is the beginning of the you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria part, okay? Which means going beyond Jerusalem to a different culture, a different language, a different people, to different customs and ways of life. So in this section that we're in today here in Acts 8, we're beginning to go beyond Jerusalem, beyond the known, into the unknown, right? Like where they don't drink sweet tea, 
and where maybe soccer, soccer is the religion and not football. Anyway, so it's different than here, right? And it's quite different than what the early disciples were used to. It's kind of like this. You know how, you know how Southerners sometimes, you know, when somebody from the outside comes in, they, you know, say, you're not from around here, are you? It's a little like they've got a little something different or something extra going on. It's kind of like folks sometimes used to say more often around here in Greene County, you're not from around here. Let it be known, by the way, that we're a church that practices hospitality in welcoming all comers, meaning even people who support other teams in the SEC, people from the north, me, people who never knew that the old Walmart is where Ollie's is. Some folks in first service are like, really? So we don't ask where you're from, right, as a way to vet you, as a way to test out whether or not we like you or can trust you. <laughs> we ask where you're from so that we can learn where you're from. And we can connect with you. And we can welcome you to God's country and make you feel like this is home. That's what the gospel looks like when it reaches out personally to people. I say all that because in this passage, there's this undertone of a current of welcome the non-green county. And that's a way of saying it, of course, but it's obviously different. Uh, It's going on here in this section from chapters 8 through 12. And I don't want you to miss that because it's a key part of how we learn what God's heart for people who don't know him works and how it looks and what it feels like. I don't want you to miss that because it's a key part of how we learn how God reaches those who don't know Jesus. If we can continue to display that kind of Jesus-centered hospitality as a church, as people, if we can communicate the love of God to people like that in our interactions with them, help them connect meaningfully to the body of Christ here, God will continue to bless you. He will bless us with the responsibility of stewarding those people's souls well. And that's that's a big responsibility. That's a high calling. So let's learn together today how we can be in the right place at the right time, saying the right thing, so that God will use us to reach people with the gospel. Jump in with me at Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Just the first phrase says this, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Press pause, quick note, this is Philip the evangelist or Philip the deacon, as he was traditionally called. He is different Philip than the original 12 Philip, not one of the original 12 disciples. So it says, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip the evangelist, meaning right at the beginning, let's ask this question. Who is in charge at the beginning of this passage? Who's in charge of what's going on here? Now, an angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, that's what angel means, a messenger, (laughs) said to Philip. Philip is a passive recipient receiving instruction from messenger of the Lord. So God's in charge here. God's the one who initiates the proclamation of the gospel, the going out of his word to the nations. Even though Jesus tells the disciples, as we just read in Acts 1-8, that they're going to carry on the work, he says it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So we'll see this God's in charge dynamic throughout the entire passage here. The God initiating this and Philip merely responding in the most helpful and appropriate way because he's got his eyes and ears open to hear where the Lord is leading. That's the simple formula for being in the right place at the right time, saying the right thing. Hearing, looking, where God's working, what he's saying to someone else. 
the questions they're asking. Philip does this well here as a model for us. So let's keep reading. He says this, Luke telling us what happens here with Philip. Rise, meaning like get up off your rear and go. Rise and go. Anytime the gospel mission moves forward, there is going going on. When you see the word go in the Bible, in fact, if you start to look for the word go or going throughout the scriptures, you'll realize that it is, it's a way of saying the initiative of God to go to reach people with the grace that he offers in Jesus is an active thing. It's rise and go. It's all over the scriptures. The first command of God to humans, Genesis 1.28 to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, which is an, an outward trajectory of going. Abraham, Genesis 12, go to the land I will show you. Isaac, Genesis 22, go to the land of Moriah. Exodus 8, Moses, go to Pharaoh. It's all over the scriptures. The Great Commission itself, go and make disciples. Now, it doesn't have to be another country. It can be right next door. It can be in your own family. But going is a trajectory. It's an outward-focused trajectory that attempts to reach others with the gospel. And that's what we see throughout this passage, what we see in Acts. So it says, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then it says this. This is sort of funny to me. This is a desert place. Luke just says it, matter-of-factly, this is a desert place. Uh, Gaza was the last stop before you began to get to nowhere in, in that geography at the time. So it's like God saying to Philip, I want you to go south from Jerusalem, the city that you know, to Nowheresville, which you don't know and which is desert. For us, it's sort of like, I remember as a kid driving across country on I-40, going past Memphis, and into Arkansas, and Oklahoma, and Texas, and beyond all the way to California. Which means, buckle up, because the farther west that you get on that trip, you're going to drive progressively longer and longer stretches of nothingness, where you pray there's a gas station or civilization, and you begin to wonder, why didn't I just fly? Except going west into Gaza, that was south. So, he's asked... To go to Gaza, the last stop before you get to the desert. So faithful Philip braved I-40 through West Texas. Verse 27. And he rose and went. Look at that for a second. It's sort of rise and go. He rose and went. What we see here with Philip is simple obedience. We very often as Christians make communicating the gospel far more complicated than it needs to be. And you'll see in this series this theme of really it's much simpler than we think. It's much more about going past our fears of going to Gaza than it is about knowing things. In fact, our lack of fruitfulness as modern American Christians isn't because we don't know enough. It's because we don't do enough with the things that we already know. You don't need to know much more than you already know. Apparently, you already think you know enough to have saving faith in Jesus now, if you're a Christian, right? 
The problem isn't that we don't know enough. It's that we don't do enough with what we already know. And we see this simple obedience uh, in a few cool places here with Philip. Rise and go. He rose and went. Verse 27. And so here's what he found. Verse 27. There was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. Now, a lot of details are given to us here in verse 27. A few to make sure you're catching. It says this. First, the Ethiopian was a eunuch, uh, likely meaning he was um, castrated, not emasculated, which is different, which is more. Let's not worry about the particulars. Um, they were common in royal courts. They were common in royal courts. And this dude, uh, we don't know his name. He was the treasurer. He was the highest ranking official of the court of Candace, the queen. Now, Candace probably wasn't her name name. It was probably like a royal name, the dynasty of Candace. And it was something that was given to someone who had that title, like the Pharaoh in, uh, in the Old Testament in Exodus. So we've got this Ethiopian eunuch. He's a court official of Candace. He was in charge of all her treasure. And here's something else we need to note here before we move on. Ethiopia here in Acts was immediately south of Egypt uh, on the sort of north coast, toward the north coast of Africa. In the Bible, it's not called Ethiopia. It's called the land of Cush in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 11, in the Old Testament, the land of Cush was named with a number of other uh, regions and countries of that time. The land of Cush was named as one of the places, and this is telling here, one of the places from which when the Messiah comes, God would reclaim his Uh, people, a remnant of his people. This land of Ethiopia was named as one of the places, this land of Cush in Isaiah 11, that when the Messiah came would be a place from which God would reclaim the remnant that remains of his people. It, It came to symbolize this mission beyond the Jews, beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, to the other regions. In other words, Isaiah had promised that when Jesus came, God would extend the kingdom to the lands and peoples beyond Jerusalem, which is exactly what we begin to see here. Remember chapters 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. So keep reading. says, he had come, he's speaking of the, uh, Luke is telling us about the Ethiopian eunuch here. He had come to Jerusalem all the way from Ethiopia to worship, which is a long way to go to church. It's not like Mohawk or Camp Creek. It's like I-40, Arkansas, Texas border. And yes, I measured. It's about 800 miles. So he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, meaning he was on his way home. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He's probably riding shotgun. He's a high court official, had somebody else probably in charge there. He was likely not driving. Okay. So he's not texting and driving. He's reading. He's riding shotgun. And notice again who was in charge of this mission. Verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, simple obedience, eyes open, Ears to hear, go over and join this chariot. (laughs) Uh, Okay, sounds weird. I'll go. Um, Luke states it this way uh, because he's stressing God's leading and Philip's simple obedience to the mission. Go over and join this chariot. So Philip, I love the way Luke states this. So Philip ran to him, which, by the way, is possible because the chariot's probably not going much faster than a little bit faster than a walking pace. But I love this picture in verse 30 of Philip running to him. Are we as easily moved 
and redirected as Philip was. In our mission to Judea and Samaria. I love this visual of Philip and his willingness to do what God asked, simple obedience, and his eagerness, number two, his eagerness to reach out to someone different than him. Philip ran to him. And he asked, a lot of cool stuff here. Do you understand what you're reading? Notice Philip doesn't go right into explaining. Do you think Philip knows Isaiah? He doesn't jump right into explaining. He asks a question first. <laughs> Take note, blabbermouth, know-it-all Christians who talk incessantly. Are we beginning to preach? He asks a question first. Do you think the guy doesn't know his Old Testament scriptures? Do you think this guy, uh, Philip, overhearing a foreigner who's not a Jew like he is, talk about Isaiah? Do you think he doesn't first think, oh, I, I could tell you all about Isaiah. I could tell you about this suffering servant thing. You're, you're reading from that passage where, of course, the Messiah is promised, and we didn't know it was the Messiah, but now we do. And, blah, blah, blah. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? It's like God, like putting it right out there on a silver platter. <laughs> and Philip's like, awesome. He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And notice this. He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This foreigner invites Philip to come up and sit with him. Speaking of God laying it right there on a silver platter, keep reading. The passage of scripture he was reading was this. <laughs> like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. So here's Philip, who knows enough of Isaiah to know. <laughs> Like we mentioned earlier, that God's purposes included reaching out to people of the land of Cush, where this guy's from, comes upon someone from the land of Cush, whose physical condition, by the way, meant that he was excluded from offering sacrifice for sin in the temple. Keep reading. And the eunuch, verse 34, said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Boom, there's his chance. He starts to talk. <laughs> then Philip opened his mouth. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. It's on a silver platter. God's leading Philip's following. The eunuch is responding. And Philip's not manipulating it. He's not being weird. He's not pushing an agenda. It's almost like, hmm, Philip's job is mainly to harvest what's there and he can see it and the Lord's leading. This is how evangelism works. The fields are white with harvest. It's not remotely as complicated and difficult as we make it. It's mostly about simple obedience and overcoming fear. And God will use that. That's how God reaches the unreachable. Just like you and me. So, God's putting it on a silver platter. He's leading. Philip's following. The eunuch's responding. Philip's job is mostly harvest of what God has planted. It says this, verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. 
What prevents me from being baptized? <laughs> Philip's like, uh, nothing. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, there's a very clear sense from the passage here uh, that the Spirit of God is in charge and Philip is merely following God's lead as a harvester of the work of God. Now, this may sound a little bit like a simplistic way to apply this sermon today, but I think reaching out with the gospel is much simpler than we make it. So we have four simple questions today, four simple questions to apply this to our own lives. And this first one's going to sound a little weird, but... Who is your Ethiopian eunuch? Who is the person that needs harvesting? Who who needs to know the gospel? Who is that person? Are you present and close enough relationally? Are you talking too much? And when time comes, are you not talking at all? Four questions, real easy. Who is the person you're reaching out to? Are you close enough relationally? Are you talking too much or are you talking too little? First question, who is your, in essence, your eunuch? If you don't have someone identified in your sphere of influence in your life and your family who needs Jesus, what mission are you on? If you don't yet have someone named, in mind, in heart, praying for, reaching out to, concerned about, wanting to communicate the gospel to, what mission have you been on this whole time? Christian who claims to know Jesus and the grace of God and love it for yourself? Or do you just hoard that gospel? What mission have you been on and for what purpose Have you been using the resources that you call your own, that we call our own, that are actually God's? Who is that person? I hope you have someone in mind. Second question is, are you present and are you close enough to them relationally? You can't hear someone speaking, as Philip does here with the eunuch, unless you're close. (laughs) And and ironically, in the world of easy travel and and globalization, um, we modern Christians are so cloistered and so shut off and so unaware of the needs of others. We are too busy to even notice those around us, and we are acting as if hell's not real. And we're not close enough to be present and relationally connected to them. People don't care how amazing you are or how much you know until they know that you care about them. And many of us Christians go around giving answers to questions no one's asking. And if they are, we're not close enough relationally to actually communicate it or to hear what they're saying in the first place. Third question and fourth question, we'll kind of take it together. Are you talking too much? Are you talking too little? Meaning, are you talking too much? And when the time comes, are you talking about the good news or are you talking about yourself? Notice here that uh, in, in Philip's response, he's waiting for the right time. And then when it comes, he, stop, he talks. 
many of us, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as the next person, many of us Christians are talking way too much or way too little. We're these crazy freakish extremists at, at either side of this. Why are most Christians constantly talking way too much and too loudly and too firmly, which is translated as selfishly, or having agenda, or anger, or saying nothing? And then we wonder, on one hand, why nobody listens to us, because we're blah, 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 blah. Or there's nothing to be heard, because we're, hmm. This application, take it or leave it. Can we please stop being extreme and weird? If we're going to be, if we're going to be intentional and thoughtful and caring about how we communicate this and how the gospel is is presented to those around us, we could do so in ways uh, that account for people not listening to this and not being able to hear that. So. <laughs> This isn't Bible. This is just me. <laughs> if we could just be normal, everyday, boring, faithful people uh, that others could buy into, maybe, maybe they'd hear what we have to say. So don't talk too much. And when it's time to talk, talk. So how do we find ourselves in the right place at the right time saying the right things? We keep our eyes open, our hearts soft, like Philip was here. Like Philip was ready to hear from God, to follow the Spirit's leading. Friends, the Spirit of God is constantly calling his people. Hey, over here, the fields are white with harvest. This person around you needs me. The Spirit is constantly calling to his people. Those who will hear, the fields are white with harvest. They're ready. You just need to have your hearts ready. Your minds open, your eyes focused, your ears hearing. Simple obedience, like a guy like Philip. And we're reading about him now. And you have stories of your own life of coming to Jesus that are just like this. People who were faithful in responding to giving the gospel to you when you needed it. They were close enough over time in humility with you so that in your times, God was reachable. In those moments where you needed help and were ready to listen, somebody spoke, somebody was there. That's what makes God reachable. And, and we can be that for others too. Let's pray, friends. Lord, we ask for more clarity of vision to see those around us who are in desperate need of a forever relationship with you. Forgive us, Lord, for uh, fixating on self and calling your resources ours uh, so that we, we don't see those around us who are in need of good news. Lord, we ask that you'd give us the strength and the faithfulness to, to be close, to be personally invested in the lives of others around us.
so that we could have relationships of trust uh, through which they could see the gospel in us and that those would be platforms for us to communicate the gospel. And Lord, when it's time, that we would open our mouths. Father, we just simply ask for us as, as believers, for us as a body, that you would continue to give us opportunities uh, so that we would see them and we would say yes to the way that you're initiating your work in the world. Father, continue to, to help us uh, so that we would be faithful, so that we would enjoy being a part of your mission to those who need to know you, to those who are lost. Father, give us in the quiet of this moment um, a fresh perspective on our own sense of lostness and how desperately we are in need of you so that we would never forget that were it not for those who went before us, we would not sit here and call you Jesus, Lord, and Savior. Lord, make of our lives a platform for your gospel to continue to go out. Help us to rise and to go. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.